You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at hcbc.com. Please enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. I want to welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church, and I have a very, very special announcement to make. We have a new member of our team, Jim Botts. Great to have him on board. And his lovely wife, Rose. And they have three sons and four grandkids. I had to get that out, right? Get the most important fact out at the very beginning. Jim is joining our team as a teaching pastor. He's going to be working with me on sermon development for future sermon series. And he's going to be the location leader to relaunch our Leander location. So we're really excited about that. So Jim and I met a couple of years ago online. No, it wasn't a dating app. You know that pastors have dating apps, right? No, it wasn't one of those. Um, we were in a cohort together trying to figure out the best way to help reach our country with the gospel of Jesus Christ through evangelism. And so we became friends at that time. And Jim's an interesting guy. And you're going to get to know him better over the time. So uh, Jim and Rose actually met on a drug deal. Seriously. And a few years later, they met Jesus, totally transformed their lives. So Jim knows what it's like to experience transformation. And uh, here's, here's a guy who's a high school dropout with now he's working on his fourth degree um, from Trinity Evangelical School, working on his PhD right now. So... Um, the parents, you know, those of you who have no hope, <laughs> Jim can talk to you about what Jesus does in a person's life. And we're just so excited to have him on the team. Uh, he's going to be bringing the Word of God to you. Um, I'm so excited. Jim is, is a passionate follower of Jesus, a person who believes in transformation, who loves the Word of God, and who teaches it very effectively. So, Jim... It's all yours. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. So as Tim said, we met online. So Tim swiped right, and here I am. Well, in the words of Francis of Assisi, when he met Brother Dominic on the road to Umbria. Hi. Oh, man. So my wife, Rose, and I just want to say we are honored. We couldn't be more excited, thrilled, humbled, honored to be a part of the family here at Hill Country to join the movement of Change Lives, which is what we are, a movement of Change Lives, saturating greater Austin with the, the love of Jesus. That's what we're all about, so we're super excited to be here. And for those of you who are at Steiner Ranch, I want to welcome you in. Or maybe you're sitting at a venue. Maybe you're just sitting. Somebody sent you a link. You're watching online. We're so glad you're here. I believe that God has something to say to you today from his word. Now, we've been in the Gospel of John, the last part of it, really since after the new year. And last week, Pastor Tim took us through John chapter 19, where we saw some things that we can never unseen through the death of Christ on the cross on our behalf. We saw the love of God poured out. We saw the sacrifice Jesus paid to take the sins of the world upon himself. And we heard those final words of Jesus, it is finished. And then he died. 
And here we are today. We are in John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, just take your smartphone, the one that you're, you're, at, I mean, you're looking at right now. So, so take your smartphone, just go to a website called BibleGateway.com, and you can see a little search bar. Type in John 20, and the whole chapter will be right there, and we can go through the message together. Well, historically, today is Palm Sunday on the church calendar, which is marking the beginning of Holy Week, Passion Week, the week, the final week in the life of Jesus Christ. Now today, in this message, we're just going straight for Easter. It's like, wait a minute, we're, we're talking about Easter on Palm Sunday. Yeah. It, it's kind of like having breakfast for dinner. Seems like it's out of order, but it's actually going to be pretty cool. But so why are we doing that? Well, because next Sunday being Easter Sunday, we want to look at the implications of Easter in a whole new way. So that's what's coming next week. And so today is going to be our kind of Easter, because we're studying the resurrection of Jesus in John chapter 20. So I thought, man, since today's our Easter, why not participate in an ancient Easter greeting? Ever since the first century, the followers of Jesus Christ have greeted one another with this greeting. It's an old ancient Greek greeting, and it goes like this. The call, the greeting is Christos Aneste. It means Christ is risen. Then the response from the other person, the one being greeted, is alithos aneste, which means risen indeed. And since that's the ancient Christian greeting, we're Christians and it's Easter, sort of, why not do that greeting? So I'll do the call and you do the response. I'll do Christos aneste, you do alithos aneste, okay? Let's do that. Christos aneste. Christos aneste. And because we're Trinitarian, we have to do it one more time. Christos Aneste. Great job. Well done. Now, here's the question. Why is this ancient Greek? Why has it lasted 2,000 years? And here's why. Because when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, the risen Christ defeated all that defeats us. He defeated sin. He defeated the powers of evil. He even defeated death Itself, And so the followers of Jesus are to be defined, not by our sins, not by evil. We're to be defined by the risen Christ. And that's exactly what John shows us in John chapter 20. So here's kind of the big idea that's happening in John chapter 20. I want to show this to you right here. Here's the big idea. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. Here it is. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be restored by God. Wait a minute, don't you mean restored by God? Mm-mm. No, no, restory. That doesn't sound like a word. It's not a word. I just made it up. Look it up. If you look in the dictionary, it's not there. Now, for, from since the dawn of humanity, every human story, every life story follows the same pattern. Birth, life, death. End of story. Death wins every single time. No exemptions, no exceptions. That's that. That's the story. We're born, we live, we die, and death wins. But here's the good news. When Jesus Christ stepped out of the tomb on that very first Easter, the world suddenly became a different place. Everything changed. The risen Christ ushers in a totally new story. Yes, there's birth and we have life. And and instead of just death, now we can be born again to a whole new life and a whole new hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now under the old story, sin and death always win. 
But under this new story in Jesus, we can be redefined. We can be restoried. And that's what John shows us in John chapter 20. So the first thing that John's going to show us is this. How do we restore you? First of all, the risen Christ restores us with hope. He restores us with hope. Now, I love to hear your voice, so help me out here. True or false, nice and loud. Death is a part of life. True or false? It's true. It's just a part of life. We, we are surrounded by death every day. Death is in the movies that we see. Turn on a movie, death. Death is in the news feeds on your phone. Just turn them on and just start scrolling like every other story. Seems like it's death. E- even, even cemeteries, the places where we bury our dead, are among the living. Driving on our way to go do life, we passed by reminders of death every day. In fact, just the other day, I was driving down the road, and I saw on the side of the road a beautiful stretch of grass, right in the middle of it, a roadside memorial that somebody had put together. Flowers and a cross and a photo of a person. Reminders of death. Now, here's the reality about death. The stats on death, pretty solid. Like one out of every one people will die. And when it comes to our time, listen, none of us are getting out of here alive. I'm not talking about like in this room, like our time, I'm talking about like our time on this earth. When it comes to our time, none of us are getting out of, us, out of here alive. Here, let me ask you this question. Think about this. This is a mind blower. Think about this for just a second. One day, you will be the next person on this earth to die. You? Then what? Reality, death is a reality. It's powerful, it's inevitable, and friends, death is irreversible. Man, I'll never forget one of my earliest experiences with the finality of death. When I was just a little boy, my mother bought me a parakeet, and my sister had a cat. Oh, you see where this is going? I didn't see this coming at all. One day I come home from school, the cage is open, there's feathers all over the place, and the cat is sitting in the corner. So I rifled through the feathers looking for my parakeet, and all I could find was just one claw, like the whole, like the hand. That was it. And so I took that claw. I put it in my pocket, and I kept it in the belief that maybe, just maybe, Pinky the parakeet would come home for her claw. So I ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, did Pinky ever come home? No, she didn't. And just after a few days, I had to face reality, death one. And I gave Pinky the parakeet a good Christian burial. All kidding aside, though, maybe there are some of you here today that even right now you, you are carrying in your own heart just the heaviness over a loss, or maybe you're going through the fog of grief and your own experience with death. And listen, last we saw Jesus in John 19, he was dead. He entered into the very experience of death, and Jesus flipped the script. We're in John chapter 20. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. This is John, the author here. And she says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have put him. Notice in verse 1, those two words, still dark. John, the author here, uses dark as a literary device. He's not speaking strictly about there's no daylight. He's talking about it's a dark time. Jesus, their master, their teacher, their leader, had been tortured. He was crucified, and he died. And all their hopes for the kingdom of God came to an end. It wasn't supposed to end this way. And all they had left was just helplessness and grief. Jesus was dead. And as we all know, death is final. But our text tells us it was the first day of the week. It's interesting, note all four gospel writers refer to Easter as the first day of the week. None of them say on the third day. It's not on the third day after Jesus died. They don't even talk that way. They say on the first day of the week. What's going on here? What's happening is they're indicating a shift, something new. We're shifting to something new. It's not just the dawning of a new day. It's not just the dawning of a new week. Listen, it's the dawning of a whole new creation. Bible commentators all agree. Pick up any Bible commentary and go right here, and they will tell you John's referencing back to Genesis 1, verse 2, second verse of the Bible, when the original creation burst forth out of the dark. The day before, day seven, seventh day of the week, Sabbath day, the body of Jesus rested in the tomb because it is finished. But on the first day of the week, something radically new burst onto the scene. And Mary Magdalene and a group of ladies, they go to the tomb and they notice that the tomb had been rolled away. The the stone had been rolled away. We know she went with a group of people because it says in verse 2, we. She went with a group of ladies. And they find the stone rolled away. Now at this point, Mary's probably thinking that grave robbers have stolen the body away. In fact, she even says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Mary Magdalene's not anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. No one in John chapter 20 is anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. She's probably thinking about grave robbers, and for good reason. Because grave robbing was so common in first century Judea, that Emperor Claudius Caesar declared through a decree that grave robbing was a capital offense worthy of the death penalty. And so Mary sees the stone is rolled away. She runs back to tell Peter and John what she has seen. Let's pick up the scene there. John chapter 20. Look at verses 3 through 8. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. 
Notice there's three mentions there of running. Mary runs from the tomb. Peter and John, they, they, they run to the tomb. Peter and John race to the tomb to see what Mary's talking about. And John, the author, wants all the world to know forever that he, in fact, outran Peter. <laughs> what a dude thing to say. He's like, hey, I just want you to know. Peter's like a lineman. He's good for 20 yards. Me, I'm a slot receiver. I go all the way to the end zone. What's the point? Here's the point. What we're seeing in John 20, all through John 20, are eyewitness details. These are the things that actually happened by people who were actually there, written in ways that only people who were actually there could say. So John doesn't go into the tomb, though he gets there first. And Peter, in his usual ready, fire, aim way, just runs straight in and he takes a look. What does he see? What gets his attention? Our text mentions the grave clothes. No less than five times in verses three through eight, grave clothes are mentioned, the linens in the NIV. Not only was, listen, not only was the tomb empty, the grave clothes that the body of Jesus were wrapped in, they were empty too. They weren't just empty though, they were orderly. There was something about how they were empty that got their attention. Like an empty cocoon, the grave clothes were still in the shape of Jesus' body, but the face cloth had been folded and set aside. What's the first thought? This is not the work of grave robbers. Grave robbers would either take the whole thing or it'd be a mess in there. And we all know from the Gospels that there were 75 pounds of spices rolled into those linens. It'd be a mess all over. That's not what they see. What do we see? We see a miracle. Jesus was raised from the dead, and his resurrection body somehow passed through those grave clothes. Now, when we look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in his resurrection body, he does some interesting things. One of them is he does what anybody would do. In fact, one time in one of the appearances in Luke, I think it's in chapter uh, 24, he appears to his disciples and they freak out thinking he's a ghost. And he's like, do you have something to eat? And he eats a piece of fish. They go, oh. So like he can eat. But then also here he passes through the grave clothes. And then even in John 20, in just a few verses ahead, he passes through closed doors. So in the case of the empty tomb, in the case of the orderly grave clothes, we see a major miracle has occurred. I don't know if you noticed, but it's kind of a minor miracle in here too. There's a minor miracle in this text. In the case of the folded face cloth, we see a minor miracle. Single dudes, take note. Jesus gives us an example of a single man who folded his own laundry. Like, what's next? Is he going to cook a meal? <laughs> yes, he is. In John chapter 21, the next chapter, he actually cooks a meal. What's going on? What's happening is the empty tomb and the orderly grave clothes signal the message. And the message is not that Jesus is missing, that Jesus is alive. He had been raised somehow supernaturally. Our text says in verse 8, John saw and he believed. What did he believe? Not that Jesus was missing. He was alive, he was raised, he was resurrected. So John is the first one to believe that Christ is risen. Peter, on the other hand, Luke 24, 12, tells us Peter left this scene wondering. And so let's continue, John chapter 20. Look at verses nine and 10. It says, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back 
to where they were staying. Notice that reference here to Scripture. It's not referring to one single Scripture or one single text that says Jesus was to rise from the day from the grave. It's the whole sweep of the biblical story that tells us that the promised one, the coming one, the Messiah, would be the one who would defeat evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Write it down. Genesis 3, 15. Remember? The coming one would be the one who would defeat evil. Scripture tells us in the big sweep of the story that the coming Messiah would be the one who would bear the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, write it down, look it up. That the coming Messiah wouldn't just defeat evil and deal with sin, but he would also defeat death itself. Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. All I just did was quote for you the very things the apostles quoted in their preaching in the book of Acts. The biblical story testifies that Jesus defeated all that defeats us. In fact, uh, evangelist from the 19th century, D.L. Moody, put it this way. He said, death may be the king of terrors, but Jesus is the king of kings. He defeated all that defeats us. Now listen, if we went up and down these aisles, we could get widespread agreement to this statement. Our world is not as it was meant to be. Something's wrong with this world. Every one of us would go, yep. And we would also get widespread agreement that all of the so-called solutions being put forward by this group, that group, and the other group are failing on all fronts. We would all agree. Here's some good news. There's hope for the world because Jesus Christ is risen. Here's some good news. You don't have to fear death anymore because Jesus Christ is risen. Here's some good news. You can have and born, be born again to a whole brand new life because Jesus Christ is risen. And here's some good news. Somebody just sink a putt? Here's some really good news. You can become the person that you were meant to become because Jesus Christ is risen. So John wants us to see that we can be restored by the risen Christ. And the risen Christ, he restores us, first of all, with hope. But second of all, he restores us. The risen Christ restores us with grace. What's grace? Grace means unmerited favor. Just God's favor to you is a gift. Just gift. Can't earn, can't deserve. It's gifted to you. Now, this coming weekend, on Easter weekend, 2.4 billion people, that's billion with a B, 2.4 billion people will celebrate Easter. That's one-third of the world's population will celebrate a religious holiday together. Why? Well, because when Christ rose from the grave, he changed everything. Christ's resurrection literally split history into two, forever marking the time B.C., before the coming of Christ, from A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Here's an interesting little fun fact. Every time you write down the date, you reference the reality and the fact of the risen Christ just by the date. Here's another fun fact. Every book in every library in the world right now bears witness to the fact and the reality of the risen Christ through the date under which it's cataloged through the library. 
Books written by atheists who say God is dead and you're stupid for believing him. Or books from opponents of Christianity who want to rewrite the story to be something other than what it really is. All those books bear witness to the fact and the reality of the risen Jesus. Just open the first page, look at the date, and go, ah. But the risen Christ didn't just rewrite world history. He rewrote the personal histories of all who trust in him. Now think about your life for a moment. Think about your story. If every day was a page and every year was a chapter, what title would you write over your story, your life story right now? The truth be told, some of us would write a lonely story. You've been looking for belonging and connection and relationship and love for your whole life. I haven't been able to find it. Others might write an addiction story. Something's got a hold of you. You don't want it, but you want it, and you don't want to want it, and you want to get free, but you can't. Some of you, you'd write over your whole story. Maybe you'd write a religion story. Maybe you grew up with some kind of religious background. And you, you do the best you can to do everything you know to please God, but yet you just somehow always feel like you just let God down, like you're just a failure. And there are others of us who might write over their life story a depression story or an anxiety story. Our world is so full of voices telling you who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be. You're confused, you're paralyzed, you're overwhelmed. You think it's just all pointless. Good news, the risen Christ restories broken people. We're in John chapter 11. Look at verses 20 and look at verse 11 through 16. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Can you just feel this intimate moment here? Can you just feel the power of this interaction? The New Testament records no less than 11 distinct and separate post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. And friends, it is not by accident that the risen Christ chose the first person he would show himself alive to would be Mary Magdalene. 
Luke chapter 8, verse 2 tells us that previously Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. You want to talk about a person who's got the title of their life story needs to be rewritten? It's Mary Magdalene. And she became a faithful follower of Jesus. In fact, Mary was one of the only ones at the cross the entire time while Jesus was suffering for the sins of the world. We see that in John 19, 25. All four gospels put Mary Magdalene at Jesus' tomb on Easter morning, and there she is. And she's so blinded by grief and the fog of grief, she can't even recognize Jesus when she sees him. And some of you know exactly how that feels. To have so much, the fog of grief, of the loss that you've gone through, just blinds you. But Jesus calls out to her. And all he says is her name, Mary. Here's the problem. Uh, Jesus chose a woman to be the first witness of his resurrection. That's a problem. Because the Jewish Mishnah declared that a woman's testimony was not admissible as evidence in a court of law. In the ancient Near East, women were treated as property. They had no legal standing and no voice whatsoever. In fact, the second century pagan philosopher, an ardent opponent of Christianity, a philosopher named Celsus, wrote these words. He said, quote, if you, uh, he said, Christianity can't be true since it's based on the testimony of women. He even called it the, the gossip of women about an empty tomb. Now listen, if you were making up the resurrection story of Jesus to palm off to the rest of the world, you wouldn't pick a woman to be the first witness. That'd be the biggest, it would die right there. But Jesus, in fact, did choose a woman, Mary Magdalene, to be the primary witness of his resurrection. Why did he do that? Grace. He didn't just choose her for that. In fact, Jesus Christ elevated the status of women in his whole treatment of women. Counter to our world, counter to the culture of his own world, Jesus Christ treated women not as property, not as people without a voice, but with dignity afforded to image bearers. Why? Grace. Let's continue on, John chapter 20. Look at verse 17 and 18. Jesus says to to Mary, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her, these things that he had said to her. So understandably, Mary is so excited. She is holding on to Jesus with dear life, probably like this. And as she's hanging on to Jesus, he's like, well, slow your roll. Not yet, not yet. I have to ascend to the Father. It's finished, but it ain't over. In verse 17, he tells her, go tell my brothers. 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 Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the disciples. Last time we saw those guys, they had their tails between their legs. Last time we saw those guys, they were denying Jesus. Last time we saw those guys, they were deserting Jesus. I wonder why Jesus doesn't say, you go tell those deserters. You know, the ones who wouldn't even pray with me for one hour, my hour of greatest need, couldn't even stay awake. You go tell those deserters, the ones who wouldn't even stand with me in my hour of greatest danger, you go tell those bums to get over here and repent right before me. That's what I would have said. 
It's not what Jesus says. What does he say? Go tell my brothers. What's going on here? Here's what's going on. Grace. The grace of God to you through the risen Christ looks like two things. First of all, it looks like a new identity. It looks like a new identity. Notice he calls them brothers. This is the first time in the Gospels, anywhere in the Gospels, that Jesus refers to his disciples as brothers. He previously called them servants. He called them disciples, even slaves. He called them, you know, um, uh, friends. But here's the first time he calls them brothers. Listen, the risen Christ called those who abandoned him brothers. Turns out that in Jesus, you are not defined by your worst mistake. You're not defined by your lowest moment. You're not defined by the dumbest thing you've ever did when you should not have done it. You were defined by him, and he calls them brothers. Here's a Bible study. Read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and following. He's not ashamed to call them brothers because he makes them into what we're supposed to be. So we get a new identity, but the second thing it means is it also means a new family. I don't know if you caught it, but you notice the way Jesus describes Relating with God? He said, I haven't ascended yet, but I'm going to go ascend to my father and your father. No, our father. Where's the our father? Why is the, why is the my father your father? Turns out Jesus is the son of God by nature, not us. We can become sons and daughters of God by adoption through faith in Christ. But Jesus, what he's saying here is I haven't ascended yet to my father and your Father, my God and your God. What's going on here? Jesus is declaring that his relationship status before the Father is now theirs. He's not inviting them to their own personal, private relationship. He's inviting them to enter his relationship with the Father. He puts his arm around you and me and says, you're my brother, my sister. You're in the family. He calls us family, calls us brothers, and shares his status before God. So no longer are we defined by what we did. We're defined by Jesus. We're not accepted based on anything we did do or could do, but who and what and how Jesus has redeemed us as the Messiah. I can only think of one word to describe what that is. That's grace. And I can only think of one word to describe what grace does, and that's restoring. We're restoring. Chinese leader a generation ago, Watchman Nee, wrote, our old history ends with the cross, and our new history begins with the resurrection. In other words, friends, we are restoring through the risen Christ. First of all, he restores us with hope. Second of all, he restores us with grace. And thirdly, John is going to be showing us that, that the risen Christ restores us with mission. With mission. Uh, let me see your hand. Raise your hand if you have ever had this feeling deep down inside like you just want to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You ever had that experience before? You feel like, man, I just want to be a part of something bigger than me. What is that something? Is it just a job? making some money or something? Is it like a, I don't know, a sports team? Like when they win, you win? Because if that's the case, I'm in trouble. I'm, a, I'm from Chicago. <laughs> like our teams are the losers, which makes me. So what's the something? Is it just some cause? Like whatever's hashtagging on social media today changes tomorrow? Is it, turns out friends, that that's something that all of us deep down inside long to be a part of, it actually is the Jesus mission. John chapter 20, look at verses 19 and 20. 
On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, for three plus years, Jesus involved them in his mission, and they never felt more alive. But when he died, their sense of purpose died. And where they end up? Hiding behind closed doors in fear. In fear that the religious leaders would do to them the same thing they did to Jesus. Can't unsee that. They wanted no part of that. And somehow, the risen Christ is in the room. He appears. He's standing among them. And not to freak him out too much, he says, peace be with you. And no sooner does he show them his hands and his side to prove that it is he alive again. Does their fear turn to joy? John chapter 20. Look at verses 21 to 23. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We're drawing attention to those two words, sent and sending. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Now, 40 different times throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to himself as the sent one, sent by the Father. I came from the Father. I'm not from here. I've come from 40 different times. Jesus refers to himself as the sent one. Now, instead of kicking these bums to the curb, which I probably still would have done, he actually commissions them. And he passes on his mission baton to them to continue and complete the mission that he began. The key comes down to that word as. As the Father sent me, so I send you. How did the Father send the Son? He sent the Son into the world. And Jesus obeyed the will of the Father by the power of the Spirit to extend hope and grace and forgiveness to everyday people where he found them. And this is the mission that he invites you and I into. To be a people sent by Jesus into the everyday world that we live in. To extend hope, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus to those who have not found it. Yet we continue his mission. Now there are a few facts I think we need to put down here really quick. First, first fact is that God's mission can only be accomplished by God's power. Notice Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Why did he do that? Well, remember what they did left to themselves, right? Left to themselves, they're bums. Like, left to myself, I'm a bum. The best version of me, the best version of you, the best version of them is the one surrendered to Jesus and the power of the Spirit doing the mission of God. Second interesting fact is that Jesus' death provides forgiveness of sins to all who trust him. So it's finished. It is finished. But then there's something unfinished, and that is extending that forgiveness out to the world. Now, it's kind of tricky in verse 23. If you're from a particular Christian tradition, you may have understood the idea of if you forgive others, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive, they're not. As if like institutional authority to grant the forgiveness of Christ to others and institutional authority to withhold that forgiveness. That's not what's happening here. Here's what's happening here. Jesus Christ purchased our forgiveness and he gave his 
followers a responsibility to proclaim that forgiveness. And when people respond to Jesus with faith, we can look them in the face and go, if you are trusting Jesus, then his forgiveness is yours. But if you don't want him, but if you don't want him, where are you going to get forgiveness? The only one who can provide it, you're saying no to. So this is an institutional authority to grant or withhold forgiveness. This is a responsibility of disciples on mission to help those who respond in faith, to enter into the story of hope and grace and forgiveness. And then the third little fact here is that we come alive. We become what we were meant to become only in participation with Jesus on his mission. Not our own personal mission, not some corporate mission, not organizational mission, not what our culture calls mission, but on the mission of Jesus Christ to extend the hope of the risen Christ, the grace of the risen Christ, and the forgiveness of the risen Christ to a world in need. So here's the question. How will God restory this world from the mess that it's become into what he intended for it to be? And the answer is to an unbroken chain of sending love. I want you to picture this real quick. For our redemption, the Father sent the Son. For our redemption, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to empower. For our redemption, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity, sends you, me, us, out in the world on mission. The redemption of the world, the restoring of individuals and of this world happens through an unbroken chain of sending love. Father did his part, sent the Son. Father and Son, they sent the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, they, they done their part to commission and send and empower you and me through an unbroken chain of sending love. I grew up in an unchurched home and at the age of 22, I was a death metal drummer just coming off the road. And I heard the gospel for the first time in my life that not only made sense, but I could respond to. And I surrendered my life to Christ, and he transformed me in a moment. Now, it's different for different people. Sometimes the light switches on like a light switch, like it did for me. Others, it's more like the sun rising in the morning. You don't know what time, but you know the light's on. And when the light came on, I began to share Jesus with everybody I knew. On the job, at the factory, the very next day I was talking about Jesus on our block. Gang members, we live in a rough area. We're sharing on the streets. We began to share all the time, everywhere. And during those days, God gave me a dream. And the dream has been with me ever since. Here's the dream. In my dream, I saw God seated on a throne. But what it looked like was the sun rising. Just imagine picturing, looking at the horizon, seeing the sun rising, blazing. But I knew in my heart, that's not the sun, right? It's God on his throne. Even though I didn't see any form, I just knew it's God on the throne. And as I focused in and looked, I could see like countless heads of people between me and the sun on the horizon. And as I focused in even more, I saw that each person had their hand on the shoulder of the person in front of them. So I saw this just sea of arms all connected, pointing to the horizon, God sitting on the throne. And then I realized that my hand was on the shoulder of the person in front of me. And that person turned around, and when I saw his face, I saw the face of Jimmy, the guy who led me to Jesus. And I realized where I was. I was in that great company of all who belong to Jesus, who are connected to Jesus in that big redemptive family. 
And I just, I had this, I was overwhelmed with this one thought. I can't believe I get to be here. Like, this is it. This is the great, I can't believe I get to be here. But then I realized that I had a hand on my shoulder. And when I turned and I looked behind me, I saw an even greater sea of people behind me than I saw before me. And I was overwhelmed with this one thought. I don't want to be the one to break the chain. I don't want to be the one to break the chain of, of sharing and extending the hope and the grace and forgiveness that is in Jesus. I don't want to be the one who breaks that chain. And friends, if you follow the flow of John chapter 20, we see that the risen Christ restores us. He gives us his hope and his grace and his mission. In fact, N.T. Wright, the great biblical scholar, put it this way. He said, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so grateful that you are the God who sends, the God who sees. And there was a time when you saw me where I was and you sent someone. And they brought good news. But even before that, you sent your son, Jesus, into this world of death and pain and brokenness. And he took all of that upon himself for us to deal with our sin and to deal with death and offer forgiveness and new life to all who call upon him. In our prayer today, God, we never want to break that chain. We want to be the ones who extend the chain, grow the chain. We want to take our place in that unbroken chain of sending love to a world in need. As we continue praying today, we're going to close our message time together, responding to the word of God in the presence of God. So I want you to, in prayer, just picture for just a moment, in your mind's eye, someone you know who needs Jesus. Maybe they're close to you, but they're far from him. Are you picturing them? Could be a spouse or a sibling or a relative. Could be a neighbor or a coworker. Could be a person at the gym or someone that you see at the store. Who do you know that needs Jesus? Now take just a moment and pray for them. Pray even now. Pray that God would draw them to Christ. Pray that God would open their eyes and give them a, a deep awareness of their need for Jesus. And now, pray that God will give you an opportunity sometime in the next few days this week to invite them to an Easter service at Hill Country where they could hear about the good news and the love and the transformation available only through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for sending Christ into this world and we want to extend the chain of sending love. So send us out this week. Send us into our everyday world to see people and to invite, to come and find what we have found. Hope, grace, purpose, and forgiveness through your son Jesus in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To hear other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at hcbc.com.
And again, thanks for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.